A recent article from BBC opens with a line that sounds like it's straight from a science fiction flick. Quote, when, you're, when you are at 10 degrees Celsius, 50 degrees Fahrenheit, with no brain activity, no heartbeat, and no blood, everyone would agree you're dead, says Peter Ree at the University of Arizona, Tucson. But, he says, we can still bring you back. Ree's claim is true. He's actually referencing a bold new medical procedure that, though only tested in animals so far, drains the body of its blood, cools it far below normal temperature, damaging cell activity that would normally lead to irreversible organ or brain damage. After a wound or injury is then stabilized, the blood is reintroduced, the patient is warmed up, and a heartbeat returns on its own at least in the animals that are tested, to normal. The patient wakes up a little groggy, but back to normal the next day. Trials of the potentially life-saving procedure are planned to begin on the critically wounded gunshot victims in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the near future. The New York Times comments, quote, they are killing a patient to save his life. How many would sign up for that? <laughs> you see by your faces, little reserved a lot about that. I would be too. It doesn't make sense, does it? Actually, I want to say that this procedure actually has been in place for a long, long period of time. Matter of fact, it was enacted by the great physician, Jesus Christ. And as a matter of fact, it is part and parcel of the life of Christianity. It is what it means to be a follower of Christ. If you and I truly wish to live here on earth, wish to experience the abundant life that we can have only in Christ, we have to die in order to experience that. At the cross, you and I die to live. I need to do an aside first, just to make sure everyone understands what I'm about to say. As a matter of fact, we should probably go to the end of our passage. Jesus says a phrase, it is finished. That means that the work on the cross is done, and whoever trusts in that work, that work alone and not the work of ourselves, is eternally secure in heaven because of what Jesus Christ did. So by no stretch of the imagination am I saying that by us dying, we are then earning any favor with God. Please don't think that at all. However, however, in our culture today, I believe that we have eviscerated Christianity. And we have taken this aspect of what it means to be a follower of Christ, and we have actually flipped it on its head. Coming to Jesus now is all about me. 
Coming to Jesus actually provides for my comfort and my pleasures and my enjoyment here on earth. Coming to Jesus, Jesus is going to fulfill my plans. And folks, I'm here to tell you that cannot be further from the truth. The call to discipleship, the call to be a Christian is a call to die. What is happening to Jesus right now on the cross is to be lived out in our lives as followers of him. Jesus is dying. This whole passage is the process of that death. And in that death, Jesus is giving up things. Three things to be exact. And what is said in the other Gospels, what is actually spoken by Jesus and required of his disciples is illustrated before us in our text today. Folks, following Jesus Christ comes with a cost. The cost of our life. Let me ask you something. Are you ready to die? Three areas that we're going to look at that we see illustrated as Jesus dies on the cross The first area is we die to the things of this world, verses 23 through 25a. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. On Tuesday, September 8th, 2015, a British Airways jet caught fire at the Las Vegas airport, sending smoke billowing into the air after suffering what the pilot described as a catastrophic failure of the left engine. The Boeing 777, heading for the U.S. city's McCarran Airport to London Gatwick, could be seen with flames engulfing its fuselage. The pictures of a burning jetliner in Las Vegas were certainly riveting. However, as the plane burst into smoke and flames, observers saw something even more startling. People stopped during their evacuation to grab their carry-ons. Authorities are certainly concerned about planes that burst into flames, as you and I should be as well. But they also are very concerned that we would risk our lives to grab our carry-on luggage. So what is the big deal with going back just a few seconds to go grab, maybe it's your, your favorite sweatshirt or whatever it may be? Well, They want you to evacuate in 90 seconds. You have 90 seconds from the start of the evacuation to get out. So that's not much time at all. With the people, with 170 people on board, if they take five seconds per bag, guess what that adds? It adds seven minutes to the total evacuation time. 
Can you imagine being the last one to exit the smoke-filled cabin knowing that you were one minute, your one minute evac time is now over seven minutes because someone wanted to grab who knows what. Are you risking true life for the things of this world? Do you care more about the comforts and the luxuries and the materialistic things of this world than enjoying the true life that comes by following Jesus Christ and actually dying to such things? America's right, Americans right now have more possessions than any society in history, and yet we're not satisfied, are we? I wonder why. Americans, this is going to blow your mind. I hope it does, as it blew my mind. Americans spend more on trash bags in a year than 90 of the world's 210 countries spend for everything. Do you think we have enough stuff? I would say so. We are willing to sacrifice our, stole, our souls for the things of this world. And here's what I want to say before we dive into this. Jesus is not saying that you cannot be rich. However, what Jesus is illustrating is that you and I must not live for the materialistic things of this world and allow those things to stop or hinder our relationship with Jesus Christ or get in the way of God's kingdom purposes for you and me. Our pursuit is not to be the things of this world, but we willingly relinquish those things at the foot of the cross. We die to worldly possessions just like Jesus did his. It is absolutely mind-blowing what's going on here. I mean, can you imagine, and there's something that illustrates it that came out recently when I was at a yard sale. I'm at this yard sale, and I tend to forget that the houses that I go to most likely are people who have passed away. This woman comes out of the house. She was the daughter of the father who passed away. And she sees all the line of people. And there they are, lined up to do what? Buy those things that once belonged to her father. And she begins to cry. Our things and our stuff are most likely going to end up in the possession of others. That's what happens to Jesus' clothes. you imagine? I don't know where he got his clothes from, but maybe it was a gift. Maybe it had some sentimental value. The tunic represents the tunic of a rich man, and he would have had other garments as well, and the tunic was seamless, so they gamble for his clothes. And there he is, naked on a cross, and that which once belonged to him is now being distributed among the men who put him to death. Jesus actually mentions a tunic when he is issuing the calls to discipleship, doesn't he? What does he say? 
If someone slaps you on the cheek, what do you give to him? You give him the other cheek. And if someone takes your cloak, don't withhold your tunic as well. Jesus is doing what he asks us to do. Everything that is happening to Jesus here is something that he has called us to participate in in some form or fashion. Now, I'm not saying that you go sell all your clothes, you come next week in some weird potato sack and you sell your homes or anything like that. However, what we must understand is that these things must not hinder our relationship with God and must not make us compromise that relationship by any stretch of the imagination. Our pursuit in this world is not stuff. Period. It's not money. It's not houses. It's not, it's not toys. It's not clothing. And we are not to find comfort and security in that. We find comfort and security in this, in Christ. This is why he says and issues, he says this to the rich man, because he knows exactly what was holding the rich man back was what? His riches. And he says, go and sell everything and follow me. And the guy leaves disheartened. Why? Because he loved his stuff more than he loved Jesus Christ. And more than he really truly loved life. Our possessions must not hinder our relationship with God, and they must not define who we are. They must not define our status in life. And we need to be able to hold on to them lightly with an open hand. I am absolutely amazed right now in, the, in some Christian churches that we are elevating pastors and individuals that flaunt their riches. Jesus Christ was poor. He became poor so that you and I might be rich. But we have churches that are flaunting this as if this is what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. No wonder people aren't coming to the faith. Because we're not living it out. The comforts of this life, the supposed status that we have, what we own, what we wear, we need to be willing to sacrifice at the cross of Jesus Christ. One of the other things that Jesus sacrifices is his honor, isn't he? Isn't he sacrificing that as, as this is happening? He's hanging naked. This was one of the most dishonorable things to happen to an individual. And they're gambling for his clothes. Jesus was willing to part with these things. And he did so on our behalf. And because he was naked, because he lost his clothes, you and I are clothed with his righteousness. That's the trade-off. We trade our robes or those robes for his The second area that we die to is we die to old relationships, verses 25b through 27. Verse 
But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Guy tells a story about when he was in college. Pastor, his name is Pastor Jim Dennison. He served as a summer missionary in East Malaysia. While there, he attended a small church that was in Malaysia. He was at one of the worship services, and it was a special one, because there was a, a teenage girl who came forward to announce her decision to follow Jesus Christ and to be baptized that day. As the service was happening, Jim was looking around the, the room, and he noticed something unusual. Over by one of the walls was a pile of worn-out luggage. Piqued his curiosity, and he asked the pastor, he says, Hey, what's with the luggage over there? The pastor points to the girl, and he says, that luggage belongs to that girl. Her father said that if she was to be baptized as a Christian, she could never go home again. So, she packed her bags. 2000 and, study start, uh, 2000 and study by Barna Group found that 7 out of 10 adults choose their earthly family over their relationship with their heavenly father when asked to choose the most important relationship to them. 1,004 adults over the age of 18 that were surveyed, one-third of them said their entire nuclear family is more important than God. 17% said their children were our chief importance, 22% named their spouse, and 3% identified their parents as the most important relationship in their lives. What was interesting, when asked to identify the most important group or network in their life, almost 30% said the church. At our baptism, we were just talking about this. Hank and Patty and Anastasia, we talked about how in this culture we don't really understand or feel the pressure of what that girl was experiencing when she came to faith in Jesus Christ, do we? we in this culture, we can come to Christ and almost continue to live our lives as if absolutely nothing has changed, and that should not be the case at all. We can make an acceptance, we can raise our hands, we can be baptized, we can have a wonderful celebration, and then we go to our jobs and people are like, oh, hey, great, yeah, you're a Christian, that's good for you. And we go to our families, maybe they're a little, you know, freaked out at first, but then they're like, ah, as long as you don't, as long as you don't interfere with our lives and your Christianity doesn't enter in, then you're going to be fine. And I, I think we get away with it here, but not for people in other cultures right now. They lose their family, literally. 
They understand what Jesus meant when he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not telling us that we need to hate our families. He's using hyperbole. But what he's saying is that these relationships on earth must not come between our relationship together. If you want to be my disciple, understand that these relationships may and sometimes will suffer. And we have to be okay with that, just like this girl was. And this goes on for our lives as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I think that we get around it in this culture as Christians because we're Christians, but we're like Joseph of Arimathea, we're secret Christians. We're afraid. We're afraid to talk to people about our faith. We're afraid to challenge them on their own ideas or beliefs that they may have because we're afraid of losing our friends. We don't want to ruffle the feathers with certain relationships. We don't want to ostracize ourselves from our circles. Jesus, in the process of dying, loses his family. Now, of course, he doesn't lose them eternally, most of them or some of them, but it is an illustration for us that the death of the cro- on the cross of Jesus Christ illustrates a principle that we must be willing to die to relationships, and we must not allow relationships to hinder our walk with Christ. One of the things that amazes me in this passage is there he is, he's in his most painful moment that he's ever experienced in his entire life. He's hanging naked on a cross. Soldiers are gambling for his clothes. And he takes some final breaths to say something to Mary and John. And every time they needed to breathe, that was painful. They had to lift themselves up. And you know, he felt every bit of it. And there he is in his most painful moment ever. And who is he thinking about? Others. Jesus constantly lived outside of himself, didn't he? His concern was others. His concern was his Father's will. And there he is, he's leaving them, and he's concerned about leaving them alone. He turns to Mary, he turns to John, and he gives them to each other. And that's the flip side of what we lose, isn't it? Just like Jesus says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for the sake of my name will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Again, something dies 
but something new is brought to life, and I'm looking at the promises of Jesus right before me. You're what He promised. Family. A new family. A family in which we look at each other the way that Mary and John looked at each other. Brothers, sisters, mothers, father. Now, a dysfunctional family at times, maybe very dysfunctional at times, but a family nonetheless. And, and what he says, what he does and what he says should, should be emulated by us. That we, at that very moment, that very moment that we believe in Jesus Christ, you and I are ushered into an eternal family. That's it. Can never lose each other. We may, we may die, but we're going to be with each other for all eternity. Or all eternity. And we are to care for one another as if we are each's, each other's own. I need to care for you like I would my mom, or like I would my father, or like I would my brother, or my sister. And, and that is what makes, that is why that is why church fellowship is so radically important. We're going to see it in the book of Acts. They were cast out by society, but they formed this community. And in that community, they loved on one another, they encouraged one another, and they took care of each other. That's the church. That's why coming here on a Sunday morning is important. That's why fellowshipping with each other throughout the week is important. Because we need each other. We need to look after each other and care for one another. I'm not telling, saying they got to move in with each other. That might disrupt some relationships. But if maybe if need be, if need be, we should open up our homes to each other, shouldn't we? We should open up our hearts to each other primarily. I find it interesting, many times we're willing to sacrifice our relationship with Christ or the fellowship that we have with Christ and our relationships with each other for the relationships of this world. That we pursue relationships at the expense of those relationships. I see it a lot in our younger Christian generation where they're so focused on a, a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend and that relationship is what satisfies them and they compromise their own relationship with Christ because of that. And I, I constantly counsel young individuals, you need to find your identity in Christ before you bring anyone else into the picture. That is your primary relationship. And, and folks, it's the relationship that you and I have with Jesus that makes all the relationships, other relationships we have with each other that much more sweeter, isn't it? He loses the things of this world, his clothes. He loses his mother and his friends. And then, in the end, he loses his life. The third and final area 
we die to ourselves. Verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the Scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Two times it is mentioned the fulfillment of Scripture, and for a very, very important reason. Everything that has been, is happening to Jesus, is part of God's plan. Jesus is in the process of fulfilling that. And again, you and I can take assurance that as we suffer for Christ, we are in God's hands. God knows the outcome of our lives. And here we have the end process and the final giving up of his spirit. But before that, he utters the greatest victory cry. His cry for thirst represents the lengths that Jesus went to to deny himself on our behalf, doesn't it? Why is Jesus thirsty? Yes, he's thirsty because he's dying. But Jesus is thirsty because he's a human. And he had never experienced thirst until he took on our flesh. Philippians sums it up well. He did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he became a man. He took on flesh, took the form of a man, being humbled as a servant even to the point of death. Death on a cross, he denied himself. He denied himself on our behalf so that he could cry from the cross at this moment, it is finished. The work that God had given him to do is absolutely done. And it is done on your behalf. And again and again, I'm not going to grow, grow tired of reminding us. By no stretch of the imagination is there anything that you and I can do to earn forgiveness or favor with God. This is the work. What we celebrated today makes you righteous before him. It's the only work that God will accept to get you into heaven. Please understand that. Everything else is a result of our lives in Christ. And if you have not accepted that gift, please don't wait any longer. You're not going to go before God and recount all of your good deeds because there are none. Every time we practice that, we take away from the work of the cross. The, the, the word in the Greek is interesting. Finished. It is this, this phrase. It means a completed work with ongoing results. 
Christ's work is done, but those results are effective for you and me and continue on into eternity. Do you believe that? You believe that when you trust in Christ that you are eternally secure? I hope and pray so. You know, it's, it's interesting because it is actually, this makes it hard for people. And this is part, I think, sometimes of the denial. Why? Because we want to think that we're good enough. We want to think that there's something that I can do. I mean, I'm not that bad, really. I mean, you know, I, I don't break all the Ten Commandments or whatever it is. We have a problem with admitting what we truly need. When I remember one of the first uh, people that I was witnessing to when I became a Christian, I tried to give the gospel as clear as possible, and I think she truly understood it because she came back and she said, I don't believe that because I think there's something we can do. That's what she said. Did she understand it? Yes. Did she like it? No. We're so enamored with ourselves. That's why we have Facebook. You see Facebook, it's just like, Poo. everyone's like, take it, Poo. here I am, I'm getting a tissue. <laughs> <laughs> Profile picture. We're so impressed with ourselves. We, we love ourselves, and the love of self keeps us from our true identity and who God created us to be. In search for our identity, we're losing who we are, who we were created to be. And the self is going to keep you from that. The gospel of modern society is salvation is found in me. And that gospel is actually sneaking into our churches. Where Jesus Christ is more about our personal fulfillment than our self-denial. Jesus gave up everything. He held nothing. And he gave it up for you and for me. You and I are called to deny ourselves. Self. The hardest part to give up, isn't it? You might be able to give up your, your clothes. You might be able to give up some relationships. But man alive, you can't take me away from me. I love myself too much. That's our problem. The one who loves his life is actually going to what? Lose it. The one who hates his life, again, hyperbole, in this world, will keep it for eternal life. But we like to sanitize these scriptures. We like to take the, the point and the barb out of them. Or we just like to not talk about them, period. That's a radical call to discipleship, but that's the call that Jesus issues on all of our life. As a matter of fact, Paul sums it up because we think, we think t at times that, you know, Jesus is going to fulfill my plans, that we're coming to Jesus and he's going to do all these wonderful things for me. 
I'm going to have a wonderful life. I'm going to get community. You know, I'm going to be spiritual. I'm going to gain all the, you know, even the, the prosperity gospel. If you give to God, he's going to give back to you. You're going to, you're going to be blessed with riches on earth. It's just, just amazing. If you want a great life, follow Jesus. And Paul says, what? He died. Why is he dying right now? Not so that I can live to myself, but so that I can live to the only one that matters. Him. Our identity is found in Christ and Christ alone. And you see it everywhere today. This We're recreating ourselves. We're trying to establish identity, but we are doing it apart from our Creator. And all that is going to lead to is a loss of true self and a loss of who we're supposed to be. I promise you, like Jesus says, if you lose yourself, you're going to find out who you were truly made to be. We don't belong to ourselves anymore, do we? Our prayer every day should be, Lord, here I am. What do you want to do with me? Why do you have me here today? How can I honor you today? I got to admit, I don't pray that prayer every day. I think about my plans. I think about what I want to do. I think about finding things, selling them on eBay, making lots of money. Because we get enamored with the things of this world. And we get enamored with ourselves a lot. We are changed and transformed by the death and resurrection of Christ. And we are to emulate Him in every way we can. We are vessels for His glory and His grace. We lose ourselves to find out who God truly wants us to be. I'm going to end with an illustration. It's a little longer one. But this man's life actually illustrates everything that we just talked about. Has anyone heard of Beckett Cook? For, for years... Beckett Cook had a highly successful career as a production designer in the fashion world. He says this, My identity as a gay man was immutable, meaning unchanging. He didn't think it would ever change. He found his identity in being gay. Or so I thought, he said. In 2009, he experienced something extraordinary, a radical encounter with Jesus Christ while attending an evangelical church in Hollywood for the first time. He explains what happens. I walked into the church a gay atheist, and I walked out two hours later a born-again Christian in love with Jesus. He said, I was absolutely stunned by this reversal. Since then, I no longer identify as gay. Surrendering my sexuality has not been easy. I still struggle. However, denying myself, taking up my cross and following Jesus is an honor. 
Any struggles that I experience pale in comparison to the joy of a personal relationship with the one who created me and give my, gives my life meaning. My identity is no longer in my sexuality. It is in Jesus. When he came out to his friends and family and co-workers, you would think that they would have celebrated him for his authenticity. Did they? No. He was met with skepticism and in some cases outright hostility. His closest friends abandoned him. He lost his relationships. His production design agency in Hollywood dropped him under the most vague and frivolous pretexts. He lost the things of this world, even though he was one of their top artists. He went on to say, I'm not complaining or claiming to be a victim because what I gained, what I gained in Christ is absolutely priceless. I am learning to count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. Yes, the loss of close friendships and a lucrative career were harsh. However, being in the kingdom of God more than compensates. Recently, Cook exclaimed to a friend, I am the most authentic person you know. In fact, because I'm now who God created me to be. Becoming more and more like Jesus, the truest human who ever lived, is a far more authentic transformation than becoming more and more like whatever self my fluid feelings suggest on any given day. We die at the cross in order to live. Father, It's tough passage, Lord. We do not know what you have called us to or what this looks like in this respect. But we do know that these areas must be willing to be sacrificed at the cross, at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Help me and help everyone here to do just that. Help us to know that in all the things of this world, in all the relationships that we may have, all the plans that we have for ourselves, all of it pales in comparison to knowing the one true treasure of your Son, Jesus Christ. I ask you to test us in these things. Refine us. Help us to be made more and more like your Son, the truest human that ever lived. We ask this in his name. Amen.